This week on your Western Context, Trudeau and Singh reach a deal on Pharmacare. BC's budget introduces a flipping tax and lots of spending. And Daniel Smith wants to build up the Heritage Fund. Also, the BC NDP wants us to stop using the term British Columbians. This is Western Context, episode 358, recorded Saturday, February 24th, 2024, Guiding Our Future. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Western Context. Patrick and myself are back this week, as we are each and every week here, to deliver a slate of news that you probably haven't heard of and some news that's that's missing the entirety of its Canadian context for it. Yes, indeed. There's uh, some very big ticket items this week, uh, quite literally, in the news that have been talked about in the media, but really have not had the coverage that they deserve from all angles. And of course, there's a few other stories that kind of flew in under the radar a little bit, and we're bringing them here for you today to get you the full context of what's going on in Canada these days and how it matters to you. That's right. And of course, if you're joining us for the first time, Western Context is a podcast that aims to cut through media bias and sensationalism from wherever you get your news, whether it be a newspaper, whether it be the TV or the online news, of course, is that is very prevalent, the bias and sensationalism there. And in cutting through that, we hope to provide all the information and context necessary to put you, our listeners, on the right side of the news. And with that, we want to start off with one of our Canada stories this week. And this is a story that that broke on Friday and is going to have a substantial impact for all Canadians through 2025 to the next election. And that's because it was announced by the NDP that they now have a deal with the Liberals to bring in a national pharmacare program. And of course, the reason we're talking about this is because that pharmacare deal is what the NDP said would be needed to keep the agreement between the two political parties alive heading into the rest of 2024 and the first bit of 2025. Now, the NDP has said that they have a deal on pharmacare legislation in principle. We don't know exactly what will be in the legislation, but in broad strokes, the deal is said to specifically mention a single-payer system, meaning that all Canadians will pay into it and have access to it eventually, and in exchange, people will get free access to birth control, IUDs, emergency contraception, and coverage for all insulin drugs that are necessary for type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Now, the first piece of legislation is being heralded as a success by NDP leader Jagmeet Singh because not only is it universal pharmacare, but also contraceptives and the diabetes medication. Now, Singh says that the deal will help Canadians afford prescriptions, but also in some way, he says, and this is what the NDP says in particular, the universal pharmacare program will help to lower inflation. And that pharmacare plan will cost an additional $40 billion a year to the Canadian taxpayers. Now, of course, economists are already scratching their heads because excess government spending does indeed drive higher inflation. So the question is, of course, how is a pharmacare program worth $40 billion, as as is measured, could be more, could be a bit less. How is a program like that going to reduce inflation? And secondly, with this, how is such a program actually going to be afforded and where 
is that money going to come from? Now, if you talk to the NDP leader, he says it as a way to lower inflation because in his views, it's going to save money for women and for people that need to access contraceptives, and it's going to save money for people that need to take life-saving insulin or other medications to deal with diabetes. Now, he also believes that this will bring down the cost of medication for everyone as well and wants to fund it by cutting government contracting and investments in the oil and gas industry. Now, of course, we know how how the Trudeau government has treated the oil and gas industry and everybody west of Ontario is acutely aware of that. So this should, of course, be, be no surprise as to the way the government is going to continue to go as it heads into the, 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 the last year and a bit of its administration before the next election. Now, there's going to be a lot to un- unpack on this, and the devil is in the details since we don't know what the bill will contain yet, but based on the things that have been mentioned, specifically the idea of a single-payer system and a federally managed plan, there are broad strokes that everybody needs to worry about. And to see exactly how this kind of impact can reverberate throughout the country, we can, of course, look at the National Daycare Plan that we talked about a couple weeks back that was causing issues in Alberta. And actually, just recently, daycare operators in Ontario say that the $10 a day program is having issues in that province as well. That is, again, leading to potential closures of facilities. Following the money and the economics of the situation, based on the idea of it being a single-payer system, means that drugs will become more expensive if they are subject to be centralized, or rather to fall under centralized fee schedules, and if the program increases demand from where we are now across the Canadian pharmaceutical industry, either by more people tapping into the into the programs that are available, or by the by the system creating an artificial shortage, prices will eventually go up. Now, people might not necessarily be aware of this, but when you compare the Canadian pharmaceutical system, it actually works a lot better than the American system. And when you look at what a single-payer system means for something to the tune of National Pharmacare, the plan is rife with all the risks of the American system without the benefit of the free market. And that's probably something that's going to be one of the biggest caveats of this plan and isn't really going to get talked about because, of course, the folks who want this are going to be going and asking for free stuff. And the government and the NDP hopes that this will be a tool that will improve their electoral fortunes as we head closer and closer to the next election. And when we look at daycare to dental care to pharmacare, the deals that have been delivered to the NDP have, of course, already been causing problems for those in the established industries. And as such, we'll be watching with a close eye as to how the government plans to roll out such a huge program, because this would definitely be the biggest one that they've tried, totaling upwards of a potential $40 billion a year. So it's going to raise a lot of questions, both in terms of what the details are of the plans, but also how the federal government plans to implement such a thing when, as we talked about last week, they can't even get a single app out the door without without a hitch. Now, looking at this from a more analytical angle and what it means for the political parties, we need to, of course, understand that this also completes the merger of the Liberals and NDP in all but name. There's not much now that 
differentiates the two political parties presently, and it remains to be seen if NDP voters realize just how badly their party has been cannibalized by the liberals. Now, political studies have been done, and empirical evidence actually shows that very rarely do junior coalition partners or even those that support minority governments get rewarded. And, of course, the textbook case of this that happened the most recently was a 2010 to 2015 UK conservative and liberal Democrat coalition government that saw David Cameron and Nick Clegg work together, except, of course, the aftermath of that was that Clegg's party was decimated in the election that followed. So with that, if polling numbers are to be believed today, it shows that the numbers of Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh are converging together rather than going up. And this is the trend that's been moving in that direction since last summer, and it's going to be hard to shake as we head closer to 2025. And that's because the NDP have wedded themselves so hard to the Liberals that both parties have become indistinguishable from each other and now in all likelihood bear the sins of each other as well. And the only real thing that's different is the party membership and name. In time, it would be, of course, to see how closely voters tie Singh and Trudeau together and the difference, if any, that appears in both leaders' favorability. The arrangement between the Liberals and NDP is not a coalition government by name in that both parties, for it to be an official coalition government, would have to have seats at the cabinet table, but it is effectively a coalition government in everything else but name and is heavily unprecedented in the Canadian history at the federal level. Now, as more people digest the news of Pharmacare, we'll have to wait and see if the fortunes of either party improve or the spiral continues. And if the if the spiraling continues for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, and for some reason in the variety of polls that we see out there, the aggregates or even internal polling done by the NDP, maybe sooner rather than later, Jagmeet Singh will be questioning if it was a good idea to continue this if he starts pulling ahead of the prime minister. But at the end of this, this now means that with the utmost certainty, there will not be an election until 2025 unless something major changes in the Canadian political landscape. Yes, and I think that's really the main takeaway from this story is not really about the Pharmacare deal itself, but because of Jagmeet Singh's um, unpopularity of his own party has really made aware of the fact that he has put himself uh, so closely to Trudeau that uh, most of what Trudeau has passed over the past few years has really only been um, uh, being able to be passed because of the NDP. And while, of course, uh, Pierre Polyev's conservatives always call it the liberal NDP coalition, while it's not a formal coalition government after this deal, I think we can say that they are quite certainly working closely together to pass government policy. And therefore, the NDP do have a share of both the praise or the blame, whichever you prefer, of what Trudeau has been doing. And as you said, you know, he's gotten a few major key things, namely the child care, dental care, and now pharmacare. These are all major uh, planks of the NDP, NDP platform when it comes to health care. And whether or not they succeed is going to be um, an indictment or success of this NDP 
um, party going forward. Uh, whether or not they actually work is another thing altogether because, again, it's going to be a lot of spending and we're going to have to see whether we actually get the services and the outcomes that we want to get from the spending that is happening. And as you said, there's not really many details just yet and we're not really sure exactly when this is going to be put in place just yet. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack with this, of course, that we won't really know until later on. But of course, the political ramifications are clearer more than ever that we won't see an election this year in 2024, which means voters will not have an opportunity to change their government if they so choose to do so. Yeah. And, and you, you know, you look at what what does success look like for this for the NDP? If it's a successful program, the liberals will walk away with it and the NDP aren't going to get anything for this because what's the alternative? The liberals in terms of finding their next success is moving back up to a majority government. And if that happens, the NDP loses any leverage they have. So the only realm of success for the NDP after this partnership that they're in right now is that either they form government themselves or they form the official opposition and the conservatives become the third party. And based on how things are looking right now, there's a very, 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 very tiny, teeny, tiny percent chance of that happening. And you have to really question what exactly the NDP strategists see in this and how they see this is a good idea to continue on right now, because you either are aiming for government itself or official opposition status. And for you to become official opposition, you either need to have the liberals fall down even further or have the conservatives fall down to third place. And one of those is more likely to happen than the other. And the the question at the end of the day is, does this, does this policy that the NDP is, is campaigning for with the liberals help? get them there with this i don't think it does but maybe maybe there's more people who need who need drugs in the country than we're aware of and when we start taking a look back at this from thirty-five thousand feet it might look uh different from the strategist in mind but based on how the normal person sees it it doesn't seem like it's something that's going to benefit the ndp it's only going to benefit the liberals at this point which it's it's a little bit weird that they don't see that but in any case it is what it is. We're gonna we're gonna move on to BC right now, and uh, before we do that, I'll just take a moment to remind our listeners that you can support the podcast on Patreon monetarily if you so choose to. We have three tiers of support available, starting for as little as two dollars a month, where you can help us remove bias and sensationalism from the news and media. You can find out how to subscribe to that at Patreon.com/slash Western Context. And if you want to give a little bit more for five dollars a month, you can continue to. Uh, support the podcast and also have your name read out on the show if you want and for ten dollars a month you can become a western context insider and gain an insight into our work and gain previous access to our production and show notes throughout the entire week now of course we also do have an option to make a one-time contribution as well via paypal that you can learn more about at westerncontext.ca slash support so with that we're heading on uh into our first bc story of the week. I say first for a reason. You'll see why later. Yes, of course, we'll get to our second BC story a little bit later uh, during the firing line. But right now we're going to be talking about the main BC story that was covered by the mainstream media this week. 
And that was that BC, uh, British Columbia's budget for 2024 has been released by the BCNDP. And there's quite a bit to unpack in the story as well. And first, let's talk about the big new shiny tax that was unveiled that's been grabbing a lot of headlines. And this is called the BC Home Flipping Tax, where starting on January 1st, 2025, any profits made from the sale of a residential home within two years of buying it will be subject to the tax, with exceptions, of course. However, there's a lot more to the budget than just the flipping tax, and we're going to go through all of it here in the next few minutes. But first, let's discuss the flipping tax. It's meant as a measure to discourage home flipping, where you buy a property and immediately turn around and sell it for higher than the amount you bought it for, oftentimes even within the same week or so. Now, the tax comes into effect for properties sold starting January 1st, 2025, and the tax will apply even if the property was purchased before the effective date. Now, the legislation the government intends to pass during the spring session would see a sliding scale, 20% on profits made on a home sold within the first year, gradually declining to 10% if sold after 18 months, and further reducing to zero after two years of ownership. Now, the Ministry of Finance estimates that the tax could generate about $43 million a year in tax revenue. Now, this means that if you buy a home for $1 million and then sell it for $1.1 million within the first year, you'll get 20, a tax 20% on the profit of $100,000, which is $20,000. Now, you'll still get $80,000 profit out of it, but the government will also get its cut too. Now, divorce, death, illness, and relocation for work, among other things, would be grounds to avoid paying the tax. And the mechanism for appeal of the tax and what documentation will be required is still under consideration. Now, forms will be created by tax administrators between now and January, with details expected after the legislation is formally passed. Now, the revenues are earmarked towards the construction of new affordable housing in the province. Now, the housing sector cannot be understated, and BC has seen a lot of challenges over the past year. Now, the provincial government, uh, especially the budget, have formalized uh, billions of dollars in promises made by the BCNDP in recent weeks for programs like BC Builds, and it also provides an in-depth analysis of where the housing market is and where the government believes it's going. Now, building permits were down last year, and unsold inventory of new homes grew in uh, Vancouver, Victoria, and Abbotsford areas compared to 2022. And interest rates were blamed for slumping sales last year in BC's largest housing markets, and the population continued to grow due to international immigration, while interprovincial migration saw a loss to other provinces for the fifth consecutive quarter, and this was largely to Alberta. So this is uh, just showing that while housing sales have been going down uh, because of the interest rates, the prices still haven't been going down, and with more people coming into the country and coming into BC, is still outweighing the amount of people that are leaving the province to go to places like Alberta. Now, financing challenges, skilled labor shortages, and the ever-rising construction costs impacted the market, and the number of new homes that were finished and ready for occupancy declined in the Vancouver and Kelowna areas, while Victoria and Abbotsford saw increases. Now, despite that, uh, according to this, uh, this uh, budget, 
quote, the ministry expects home sales activity to rebound in 2024 from slow activity in 2023, with prices expecting to rise an average of 2.3% this year and 2.9% in 2025. So home prices are still going to go up regardless of this tax being put in place and regardless of what other measures that the government is going to put in place for affordable housing. So even what they're doing here with this tax, it's not really going to result in more affordable housing, and it's not going to depreciate the prices of homes in B.C. Now, this budget is, of course, being passed in an election year, meaning that if the NDP are not reelected on the scheduled date of October 19th, of 2024, this tax may not come into effect. Still, with opposition support divided between the BC United and BC Conservatives, it's looking like Premier David Eby will be cruising towards a majority government even bigger than the one he inherited from John Horgan. Now, regardless of how popular he or his party's policies have been over the past year and a half. Now, one part of his BC budget that will raise eyebrows is the amount of money that the government is spending. Gone are the fiscally prudent days of the Horgan NDP government. EB is currently spearheading a budget that includes a record level of spending and a record level deficit to the tune of $7.9 billion, as well as economic growth of less than 1%. Now, Finance Minister Katrine Conroy said Thursday that while BC is an economic leader in Canada, a slowing economy and increasing housing and grocery costs mean that people needed help. And, of course, the help that is being provided is the government spending more and more money. Yet both sides of the political spectrum note that while EB is spending more money than ever before in a budget, there are still many key things missing. Now, the Narwhal, who is a, which is a left, left-wing, um, more environmentally conscious publication, uh, reports that while there's a huge contingency fund for wildfires, there is no new funding to protect old growth forests, wildlife, or to create new protected areas and parks. Now, the deficit budget commits more than $1.3 billion over the next four years, $325 million a year to fight climate change and to build a cleaner economy, in its own words, in partnership with First Nations, communities, and businesses. And of that, $4.5 million is dedicated to climate emergencies. Another 40, uh, 435 million is for the Clean BC Climate Plan, which is the province's roadmap to reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030, and clean economy initiatives, including BC's new critical minerals strategy. Now, conservation groups are disappointed with the budget, saying that it focuses on responding to climate disasters instead of deeper emissions cuts, while Clean Energy Canada, which is a think tank, that aims to accelerate the country's transition to clean energy, called the budget very reasonable. So that should tell you exactly what you want to think about this budget, as well as what most environmentalists are thinking, saying that they're disappointed in it, uh, No, saying that they're, it's really not going as far as they would like. Now, Clean Energy Canada Executive Director Mark Zacharias said that, quote, I think that's the first time we're actually seeing the government connect the dots between climate, the economy, and the environment, and also BC's future position in a world that's decarbonizing, so we're actually pretty pleased with the budget. So there's a lot lot to take note of if you're a fan of the environment, but also if you're a fan of government spending more and more money on decarbonizing initiatives. And yet, on the other hand, we have to look at just how much the government is actually spending 
and how many services were getting out of that money. Now, Conroy budgeted for three years of operating deficits, totaling $22 billion, which is double her forecast this time last year in her first budget as finance minister in the David E.B. NDP government. Now, the revised three-year plan also calls for an adding $61 billion in debt, leading to an almost 60% increase in the total provincial debt since EB took office just under a year and a half ago. Now, the John Horgan NDP government took power with an ambitious agenda and a determination to increase funding to services that were neglected by the previous BC Liberal government. And it also governed through a genuine crisis during the COVID-19 pandemic. Nevertheless, Horgan and his two finance ministers, the now-retired Carol James and the outgoing Selena Robinson, managed to deliver four surplus budgets in six tries. And their one substantial deficit was a record-setting $5.5 billion. But that was, of course, in the worst year of the pandemic. And as EB's finance minister, Conroy's proposing to break that deficit record by a wide margin in each of the next three years. Now, Horgan, despite the pandemic, wildfires, flooding, and other challenges also managed to completely retire the province's operating debt, leaving behind a burden of zero dollars in that category of debt at the end of his last year in office. And Conroy, on EB's behalf, on the other hand, is proposing to boost the operating debt to an unprecedented $22 billion just over the next three years. All in all, the EB government is wanting to boost the total provincial debt to $165 billion, which is almost double what it inherited from the Horgan government. Now, Conroy, of course, of course uh, insists that our debt burden remains manageable. And for now, yes, but in a large measure, it is manageable because previous governments managed debt and borrowing within reasonable limits. In tribute to the Horgan government's relative prudence on fiscal matters, the debt rating agencies maintained it at the same top-ranked credit rating that it inherited from the B.C. Liberals. And that record is why B.C. had ample leeway to borrow at the best rates and spend heavily when hit by the genuine crisis of the pandemic. Now, Conroy's best hope is that the agencies will cut her some slack because, of course, the $11 billion in unallocated contingency funds. And this is enough to cut the projected deficits in half if used to cover operating costs. Unless, of course, EB follows what he did last time, which is when he spent most of the $6 billion that Horgan left behind in his last budget for emergency funding and allocates much of that to election-type promises like he did back when he first took power. So we'll have to keep track and make sure that EB's spending actually benefits British Columbians or if his deficits will start to mirror Justin Trudeau's federal deficit spending, which is lots of money spent for not much in return. Yeah, we were wondering when the NDP in BC would um, revert back to the to the proper color of NDP orange, because it, it goes without saying that NDP governments typically um, do like to spend. And when when you look at this, the the Horgan NDP government was very clearly an anomaly in that regard, and. It, it's good they did what they did because it afforded that cushion to be able to spend during the pandemic. Whether or not you agree with that, at the end of the day, you do have to admit that there was actually some uh, pretty f fiscal uh, prudent managing happening there. And you look at this and, you know, you, you look at some of the budget documentation, you see that BC is not forecast to return to 2022 GDP per capita under this current plan 
until 2031. And you combine that with the amount of spending that's going on, effectively what you have with GDP per capita, it means how much is each person producing at an annualized rate in the province. And then those numbers, when you combine them all together, get you to a point where you can track economic growth. And the general idea is that if the government spends, you will you will stimulate this economic growth. But the B.C. government's own budget documents say that GDP per capita won't get back to the previous levels until 2031. So the question is, are they going to go deeper into the hole? which is, of course, a big, huge opposite from what John Horgan did. And it definitely looks like David Eby wants to go that way. And as it stands right now, there doesn't seem to be much opposition available to criticize this. Yes. And when we first uh, covered uh, David Eby when he became leader, we definitely noticed that there were a lot of funding announcements, a lot of uh, spending that he was proposing to do. And noting that, you know, this is something that was a bit of a change from the John Horgan government, which was a bit more fiscally prudent and was at least trying to keep operating costs down, even if they didn't reduce the size of the deficit any. And uh, that's something that, uh, you know, we were looking uh, to see if the NDP would actually do that. And it appears that under David Eby, they're going to do that. And he believes that the way to solve the problems is for government to spend more on programs to help people. Now, whether or not you believe that is actually the case or not, well, that'll come down to your own personal politics, of course. But we have to take a look at track records of governments in the recent future, of or in the recent past, rather, of what uh, has been happening in Canada. And to that, we have to look to the federal government for their spending that immediately reverse course as soon as Justin Trudeau came to power. And the amount of debt and deficits that have been going on there, and even even this past week, uh, Christia Freeland announced that there was another multi-billion dollar deficit going to be uh, forecast for this year. We have to wonder exactly what have Canadians got for all that money that's being spent. And we have to see and look at BC with a critical lens as well to see if the money that's going to be spent is going to actually project BC into the future positively, or if it's just going to be more money that we're going to have to pay back one day. And I think that that's a really reasonable question to ask, and whether or not David Eby's popularity will continue uh, as the economy continues to slump. We're just going to have to see going forward if his measures actually make up for the slumping economy or if it's just going to make it worse. Yeah. And, and you know, this is actually a really interesting foil as we uh, head into the Alberta story, because uh, the Alberta story this week is the complete polar opposite of everything that was just talked about in B.C. And we don't have the Alberta budget yet, but this week we got a bit of a glimpse into what Daniel Smith wants to do with the Alberta finances. And with that, we know there's going to be no new taxes, no new tax cuts, and no new money put into the biggest ministries beyond what is going to be an amount to keep it growing at a pace of inflation plus population growth. But the bigger uh, announcement that was mentioned was in Danielle Smith's primetime address, which address, which is going to be addressing the fiscal future of the province. The plan in short, is that she wants to start investing in the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund again. The plan is going to be 
to grow the fund to where it's at now, or rather from where it's at right now, just short of $25 billion, to somewhere between 250 and $400 billion by 2050. Now, to do this, the province will invest surpluses and interest earned from the fund back into the fund, and the province will also limit government spending and increases to that of below inflation plus population growth. Daniel Smith said that, in my view, the province has one last shot at getting this right. So many other premiers have tried but failed. Now, looking at the Alberta Her- Heritage Savings Trust Fund, many people might be wondering what exactly is that. Well, it's a sovereign wealth fund that was established in 1976 by then-Premier Peter Lougheed, and the fund was created, as it's mentioned on the Alberta government website, to save for the future, strengthen or diversify the economy, and improve the quality of life for all Albertans. Now, from 1976 to 1983, a portion of resource revenues were invested into the fund, with more money being put into the fund until 1986. But once Don Getty came into power, his government stopped putting in a portion of the resource revenues and took the interest that the fund earned back into general revenues. The Klein government, while cutting taxes for the population and slashing the size of government, still profited off the interest and didn't actually make a capital investment into the fund until 2005. No other government, progressive, conservative, NDP, or UCP, has since made an investment into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund. Since last March, $42 billion of investment income has been transferred to the government, with another $3.5 billion directed to capital project spending. Now, there will, be, there will of course come a time when oil loses its value and then loses its value permanently as more and more countries move away from fossil fuels, but we're not entirely there yet. In the meantime, Alberta and Canada, of course, has the opportunity to reap the benefits of our energy industry. Now, some people might be aware, but Norway has a similar fund that was set up after the discovery of oil in the North Sea, and their fund saw the first deposit in 1996 and now holds more than $1.6 trillion in U.S. assets. Now, we also need to be clear, of course, that Norway has a uh, rather excessive value-added sales tax that it puts on everything, and that's how they uh, fund the bulk of their uh, general services revenues. The hope is that the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund will function similarly if provincial governments continue to invest in it and provide a way later on for Albertans to live off the investment income after 2050, much in the same way that someone sets up a retirement plan. The Alberta government, of course, chose 2050 for a specific reason, and that's Alberta's net zero target, as well as the net zero target for many companies in the energy industry. The challenge, of course, will be holding future governments to account on this, and the Premier alluded that there could be legislation coming this fall to ensure that governments invest an appropriate amount and don't siphon away the interest. Now, Danielle Smith herself is bullish on the future of investment, specifically if we see a change in the federal government. She painted a picture for Albertans of the day when Justin Trudeau is gone, saying, despite the coming Years predicted global economic slowdown. I believe our province is on the cusp of an unprecedented and prolonged energy resource boom, one that will include hundreds of billions in investment and tens of thousands of new jobs, not only in oil and gas production, 
but also in designing and building the most advanced emission reduction technologies on Earth. It's going to be an exciting time for our province and for Canada, especially once we finally get a federal government that acts like a strategic partner rather than a delusional adversary. It's worth noting, of course, that the Premier's remarks were taped and put out before Justin Trudeau's press conference this week in the province. That pretty much sums up with what a lot of Albertans think of him. And, you know, we can stand back and we can look at this and say that it's all fine and well, but it's an inherently abstract concept for most Albertans, especially when there was a promise of a new 8% uh, income tax bracket created for income under $60,000 in the election that wasn't even nine months ago, and that tax cut is nowhere to be seen. That tax cut would have amounted to a reduction of about $1,500 a year for each Albertan family with two income earners, which of, a, which of course is a lot in today's economic climate. And this was a win that was just sitting there right on the table for the government to take it, and we won't see that for at least another year. Bookkeepers and economists can make sense of the announcements regarding the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, and UFC economist Trevor Toome said that the province can relatively easily get there with program spending growth kept to that of less than population plus inflation and saving all Heritage Savings Trust Fund funds. Now, the question remains, of course, will Alberta do what has only been done three times since the 1980s and actually invest into the fund, or will Daniel Smith's UCP resort back to what all the other successive governments since Don Getty have done in the province and siphon away the interest from the Heritage Savings Trust Fund and abandon this idea as soon as they establish it? And of course, the big the big takeaway from this is that if the province is able to keep investing and able to keep on this track, it would it would truly amount to something that has not been seen in Alberta since the 1980s. Yes, and it's interesting to see this announcement from Daniel Smith because a lot of people, um, especially in opposition to conservative governments in Alberta, have long said that they wanted Alberta to invest the funds into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund so that we can actually get more spending from the government without having to go into deficit. So to see this sort of rhetoric coming from Daniel Smith surely comes as a surprise to the left saying that because this is something that they've been wanting all along. And many, of course, point to Norway and what they've done with their uh, with their oil fund that they've been uh, you know, putting away for multi decades at this point. And uh, the amount of money that they've been able to save has made Norway one of the richest countries not just in Europe, but also in the world. And uh, it meant that they are able to uh, spend a lot more on social programs. And of course, with Alberta doing this, you know, it's interesting to see that uh, this sort of plan is being put in place. Well, you know, in the future could pay enormous dividends, especially with oil remaining uh, a pricey commodity, especially given that it's in demand across the world right now. And uh, with that, of course, there has to be partnership with a federal government that will actually get Alberta oil to market. And that's not been something that has been the case 
under the Trudeau administration. And uh, he's definitely not been making it easy for Alberta to sell oil to anyone other than the United States through existing pipelines. And, uh, you know, this is something that we've seen where Alberta's ability to grow their economy and to export their resources has been artificially handicapped by the federal government. And if there is a change in the federal government, it means that Alberta's economy could change quite rapidly. And, well, if if Daniel Smith does follow through on her plan to build up the Heritage Fund, this means that there could be a day where they will not have to rely on oil resources and can use that transition to other uh, another sort of economy in the near future. And that's something that, you know, governments of all political stripes would want to see happen in Alberta in the future. So for Daniel Smith to be the one to pr- pronounce this surely comes as a surprise to many people in Alberta uh, because it means that, you know, if this is something that is being put in place, it could be a very good future in Alberta for sure. Yeah, and of course, there's always you know the the question of is the government going to keep to its election promises and the t- and the missing tax cut is a big one for a lot of people. And it, and as I mentioned, this is the the Heritage Savings Trust Fund can be an abstract idea, but you know, recall going back, it was something that Alison Redford wanted to do. It was something that Rachel Notley wanted to do. And, you know, it it didn't get done during their times in office. And it would be the absolute level of irony if it was Danielle Smith, the one who the media and her opponents have painted as somebody who's being unpredictable, who did something unpredictable. But that unpredictable thing was actually something that the most progressive conservatives and even center left government in Alberta had done. And that's really not getting a lot of coverage with this. And we're going to, of course, have to wait and see what the budget math looks like next week on this story. But this is definitely a huge opportunity for Alberta to turn the corner. And we'll just have to wait and see if the UCP keeps up with it and what kind of restrictions are put in place to bind any future governments, no matter their color, to a similar saving regimen. But we do have one more BC story this week, and that's our firing line. And you know it's a big deal when we put a provincial story in the firing line segment. Yes, and while the newest BC budget took a lot of the oxygen out of the room for reporting in British Columbia, there was another story that was only covered in one space this week that deserved a lot more attention than it got. Now, this is referring to a writing guide by the BC NDP government that encourages people to not use the term British Columbians, referring to the residents and citizens of Canada's westernmost province, as it may be considered offensive. Now, the article from True North highlights the astonishing level of control that the government wishes to have over our language. Now, the guide, called the Writing Guide for Indigenous Content, which was updated on January 26, 2024, it aims to promote more inclusive language and avoid what it calls our outdated and offensive terms. Now, it provides recommendations for authors and communicators regarding terms to use when talking about Indigenous issues. Notably, it advises against the term British Columbians, citing its so-called exclusionary nature toward Indigenous peoples who may not identify with the label. Now, the guide reads that, quote, the term British Columbians is often used to reference people living in B.C., 
This term excludes indigenous peoples who may not identify with it. For many, they identify as members of their own sovereign nations and do not consider themselves part of one that has actively worked to assimilate their people. And this is our quote of the week this week because it shows just how the NDP government refers to indigenous peoples. And it also shows how they view our province and even the name of our province, British Columbia. Now, instead, this guide suggests employing the phrase people living in B.C. to be more inclusive of diverse populations, including immigrants. The guide says, quote, British Columbians also excludes other groups such as newcomers and refugees. We recommend instead saying people living in B.C. Now, furthermore, the guide includes a section on outdated terms to avoid discouraging the use of terms such as native, traditional, tribe, band, and aboriginal groups. Now, this move, of course, follows previous efforts by the B.C. government to control speech such as the removal of 750 what it calls outdated gender-based terms from provincial regulations in 2022. Now, we covered this back when it happened, and it appears that the BCNP are continuing the trend. Now, these changes, part of the Better Regulations for British Columbians initiative, eliminated terms like he, she, himself, herself, father, son, and aunt from the official vocabulary. Now, at that time, uh, Parliamentary Secretary for Gender Equality equity, rather, not equality, equity, Grace Lore uh, defended the changes, stating that using inclusive language removes barriers to services and protect people's rights. However, critics argue that such measures represent government overreach and prioritize political correctness over practicality. Now, recently, many different offensive place names have been changed in Canada, which has notably had a very dark history when it comes to racist connotations and place names. For instance, the Yukon has had many place names uh, changed after a five-letter word beginning with an SQ that refers to a derogatory name for a First Nations woman, and only recently have these many places been renamed. Now, Quebec, for their part, has had the most difficulty with the N-word, an especially offensive term for black people, especially in North America and especially in the United States. Now, many place names, including the N-word, have had to be changed in just the past few years in Quebec, including places like mountains, uh, creeks, rapids, and other such geographical terms. And surprisingly, and something that wasn't not covered anywhere else, is that the N-word even showed up in the French language leadership debate during the last Quebec election period in 2022. At the time, Parti Québécois leader Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon used the slur last uh, to refer to the book of a famous Quebec author, and then he dared now former co-spokesperson of Quebec Solidaire Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois to do the same. At the time, during the debate, Nadeau Dubois was explaining the need for academic freedom of speech in schools and universities when the TVA anchor and the evening's moderator, Pierre Bruneau, jumped in and he asked Nadeau Dubois if the title of uh, Pierre Valliere's famous 1968 book, which features the N-word, can be said in class words, uh, classrooms. And that's when Plum and Don pounced and he said, the N-word, Blanc d'Amérique, can we say the title of that book? And Plamondon said without warning before backing Nadeau Dubois into the corner. 
He said, "Is it's a book pertaining to the history of Quebecers. Are you able to say the title of that book? And this exchange played out on live television with 1.5 million Quebecers reportedly watching. And Liberal leader Dominique Anglade, who is the first black woman to ever lead a provincial party in Quebec and take part in such a debate, standing right next to them. And then Nadeau Dubois then replied, of course, we can say the title of the book from Pierre Valliere and word block Damarique. There is no problem, he said before criticizing his opponent for using the word as part of a personal crusade against his party. Now, the fact that we have such discourse happening in Canada defies belief and should be condemned. And yet there was no coverage of this in English Canada at the time. And it's it's important for us to talk about it now, because as we first hear about it, it's interesting to note that these offensive names, offensive, offensive slurs, are still happening in Canada and still happening by political leaders across the country. And that's something that really defies belief and really is not something that should be happening. Now, let's come back to BC, where a lot of these types of offensive place names have already been changed many years and even decades ago. And yet, of course, the NDP government wants to go further and even open up to debate as to whether or not our own province's name is offensive. And it's a debate that we can have. But until the name is changed, British Columbians, as well as people living in BC, will continue to use the language that they feel is appropriate. And hopefully that means treating people respect something that seems lost these days, especially in places like Quebec uh, that still have problems with other slurs that really should not be used anywhere in the world, let alone in Quebec and in Canada. Yeah, and this is, and this is of course, the double standard that you see in Canadian media. And, you know, you, you turn on the TV and you, you watch your evening news wherever you be, whether you be in BC or whether you be in rural Alberta, and you know there's a 50-50 shot that the person casting the news in your in your small rural municipality or on the island somewhere is from the east. They're from Ontario. They're from Quebec. They're from one of these places. They speak the language. They speak French. And when they are wading into these exact debates that's happening here, they're 100% aware because they work with the producers in building the newscast and it's up to the people who are at the production level to decide if something like the blow up from the leadership debate in Quebec would work their way into English Canada. And of course, these people know exactly what's happening there. And then when you get the sort of media discourse that we see in BC this week, where this story doesn't even garner a mention anywhere, it shows the true double standard that's happening in the media. And it, and it really is is part of the linchpin of at first why why a lot of people distrust the media here in 2024 but also the question is if you talk to a normal british columbian are they going to want to have a debate about whether or not the province's name is offensive when they're struggling to afford groceries mortgage payments health care and everything under the sun in that regard the answer is likely no and the idea of pushing this debate about whether or not the name British Columbia is of course is is of course offensive does come from the people who have it all and are looking to in effect move on the next window to try and determine what the next what the next area of outrage is either either fake or real 
Yes, and I think it it should be noted that over the past decade or so, there have been several articles uh, titled "Should British Columbia Change Its Name?" Many people, of course, ha- taking offense with either the British part or the Columbia part, and or or both, both, of course. And of course, these matters have never really amounted to very much because there's really not much support for changing the province's name. Because of course, if if people agree that the name should be changed from British Columbia, certainly people are not going to agree as to what the name should change to. And I think that that's something that really gets lost in a lot of these remarks on the topic. And uh, certainly this is something that really is not at the height of British Columbians consciousness, especially these days when there's so many other problems with so many of the province that can't have access to their own doctor Uh, can't get access to housing and of course are struggling to pay for the immense inflation that has been put in place on groceries among other things and so (laughs) changing the name of the province is not very high up the list and yet it seems to be something that the provincial government seems to want uh, to change the language of the province to better suit uh, a smaller particular part of the province and uh, it's something that really does not seem to be uh, seems to be a priority amongst many British Columbians to do so. And I think that that's something to really take note of here. And the fact that in other parts of the country, they're still struggling uh, to change names of very offensive names that, you know, go far beyond the term British Columbian. Uh, it's something that the other parts of the province, uh, you know, dealt with so many years ago. And yet, in other parts of the country, we're still having these issues from New Brunswick to Ontario to the Yukon uh, to Newfoundland, and especially in Quebec, where even in leadership debates, they're still using the N-word. I think, you know, it's something that BC can pride upon, that we've, we don't really have that issue in Canada, in, in BC, where we have the, you know, party leaders trying to say the word back and forth. And, you know, it's the double standard in reporting on the media where this is something that goes uncovered by all but one outlet. And yet when we hear about the a, a story from the Quebec leadership debate, you know, it just does not get covered in English Canada. It's something that blows up in French Canada, but it doesn't get covered here. And that's something that's much bigger news. And really, I think the double standard with reporting is why this is a good firing line of the week, because it really shows as to what exactly the media is focused on and what they should be focused on as well. Yeah. And, you know, the for the people who want to, you know, move the needle on this, they want to make, make and serve the omelet and the hen hasn't even laid the eggs yet. And that's the point. That's the point that we're at on this, and it 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 all you know seeks to shift the population in in one direction or another, either either directly or, or subvertively. And you know, I think with that, we can move on to our word of the week. Yes, our word of the week this week is guide, which means to direct or to have an influence on the course of action. And of course, the guide part of this comes from the writing guide that the BC NDP government put out. But it, of course, means to being able to guide the provinces as to where they want to go, which is what we saw in both the BC uh, government budget as well as the Alberta budget and the two different paths that the each of the governments want to take, where BC wants to spend out of its way out of problems and Alberta seems to want to save for the future. Now, whether or not these problems 
in BC will be saved by the spending or whether or not Alberta saves the money uh, to to take care of the problems of the future. We'll have to wait and see on both accounts. And of course, Guide uh, could also refer to the Liberal and NDP um, informal coalition at this point where they're trying to guide us towards another year of a Trudeau government that will continue until 2025. So that's why Guide is a good word of the week this week because it kind of refers to all of the stories and it really shows where our country is going in differing regards. Yeah, and and you know when we when we look at this and we look at the entirety of the news of the week, we mentioned that there were things that you might have heard of, then things that you definitely have not heard of, and that's why it's so important to get the full picture of what's happening in the news and media, whether or not it's it's from the from the political side that you agree with and support. It's always good to listen to the other side because it shows where people are coming from, and definitely a lot of people don't do that. In this day and age, and we hope that that's something that we can that we can definitely help foster uh, with the podcast. But if you want to read into any of these stories, see where any of these remarks were made, see anything about the budgeting in uh, BC and Alberta, head on over to the full show notes over at WesternContext.ca. You can also subscribe to the podcast there on any number of podcast listeners out there. We're on Apple pocket cast spotify and more just visit westerncontext.ca slash subscribe and of course we're also on x and facebook at western context so with that being said we'll be back next week for another episode of western context and we'll be sure to look through all the stories that the mainstream media talk about and a lot that they don't talk about in covering the news of the week and how it matters to canadians now we'll do this whether the stories are found in radio TV, print, or online, we will find them and we will give you the context needed to put yourselves on the right side of the news. So with that said, we'll be back next week for another episode of Western Context.